So how do you get to sleep? There's a lot of different theories, a lot of techniques to try out. There's one caller that speaks to Dr. Carl this week about how she has to rub her feet together in order to fall asleep every single night. Also, can the placebo effect actually harm you? And does cement make your nails grow faster? Get ready to learn a whole bunch of stuff talking science with Dr. Carl. I'm Linda Mariano. Let's do it. We'll kick it off in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Kayla, what is your science question this morning? Um, so when I go to sleep, I always have to rub my feet together. And I've always done it since I was a kid. And now, like, I, like, I can't go to sleep unless I do it. And there's a fair few people that I know that do it as well. Ah, Okay, uh, straight off, I don't know. Number two, let me speculate. Firstly, if you've got cold feet, it really bothers the heck out of yourself and you can't go to sleep. It's really hard, number one. Number two, um, maybe you've conditioned yourself into this weird behaviour. And I'm thinking of something like the famous Skinner box, which they do teach you about in Psychology 101. And in this particular experiment done back way in the 1920s, they had a whole bunch of pigeons and they just put them in these large boxes and then food was just dumped in there every now and then at random and then they went away. And then when they came back, the birds were all doing these different dances because they thought, oh, here's some food. Wow, I was just doing a dance. I'll do the dance again. Oh, I'm still doing this. Hey, look, some more food came. And they convinced themselves that the food was coming because of their particular peculiar movements. So maybe in the same way you've conditioned yourself into going to sleep by rubbing your feet. I'm not saying you're a pigeon. I know you have four limbs, not just two. But the point is that it was the easiest person to fool is yourself. It sounds very comforting in any case, doing a little feet rub. Yes, bed. and there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. That's right. Thank you for your call, Dr Kayla, to Ocean Grove in Victoria. Dr Fraser, what's your science question for Dr Carl? Hi, I was just wondering, why is light affected by gravity if it has no mass? Very good point. So we have mass. We are affected by gravity. You drop a pencil off the table, it's affected by gravity. Why is light affected? And the answer is um, that gravity is geometry. And anything that passes through that bit of geometry gets affected. So let me explain. Imagine you've got a trampoline. And it's just dead flat. You get a golf ball and you go flick and it just goes in a straight line. Whichever way you flick it on this dead flat trampoline, off it goes dead flat. And then get a bowling ball weighing a kilogram or more and put it in the middle and then suddenly there's a dent. Now get your little tiny golf ball and go flick. It doesn't go in a straight line. It'll sort of be curving, following the new geometry of the trampoline, curving around it, maybe curving a bit, maybe curving a lot, maybe even going right into running into the bowling ball depending on its speed and the path that you send it on. In the same way, gravity is a distortion of the fabric of space-time. And so everything then follows that distorted fabric of space-time, including light. And you read up on John Wheeler. He's a very clever physicist at the University of Texas at Austin. And his sentence goes like this. Mass... Uh, tells space how to curve. So if you've got a bowling ball, it curves space, comma, mass tells space how to curve, comma, curved space tells mass where to go. So the curved space of the trampoline tells the golf ball where to go. So the reason that gravity affects light is that gravity is not 
a thing. It's a distortion of the fabric of space-time and all the physicists are complaining about me straight away, so I'll stop before I go any deeper. Dr Marley has called up from Newcastle. What's your science question? Dr Marley, welcome. G'day, doctors. How are you going? Very well, Dr Marley. You're fabulous. Thank you for coming in today and your question or comment. Oh, I was just wondering why... So I was sitting at home and I was wondering why do I get pins and needles when I don't move my feet for a while? Right. It's, it's kind of weird uh, having a body because it's such a weird thing because it looks solid from the outside, you know, like you think you've got some flesh and there's a bit of bone. Now, um, inside the average adult body, the, um, uh, the amount of water that crosses membranes each day, goes across and comes back, is 50,000 litres, 50 tonnes. So uh, I weigh 80 kilograms and yet I'm, ca- I'm carrying maybe 50, 40 kilograms of water but 50,000 tonnes goes across. So you don't think of your body as just a solid structure like a car or a fridge but rather it's a dynamic moving structure, kind of a little bit like software and it has to keep moving to keep in good nick. Like you have to breathe from now all the way until your very last breath in a century or two. So you have two to... Two centuries. Two centuries. Two centuries. With genetic following. engineering, okay? So we'll go further. So with regard to the pins and needles, your nerves have to... Your nerves control your muscles, but they also pick up sensation. So nerves carry information in two directions. Nerves pick up sensations from the outside and they tell the muscles what to do. Now... The, you have nerves running all the way through your body and if you just simply rest one leg on top of the other or if you sit on the back of an armchair, you sit on a, a lounge and you rest your arm over the back of the chair, like you know, you're watching TV and you rest your arm over the back of the chair, so the back of the chair, the vertical bit, is resting on the inside of your arm, so the inside of your upper arm is touching the vertical bit of the lounge, then there's pressure on the single nerve that runs down there. So out of your, out of your head comes one single nerve between the bone in your body, in your arm, and then it runs down into your hand and you can put pressure on it. And so you can then, after a while, it thinks, oh, this is bad, uh, I'm not being able to carry any impulses, I'll go into the default mode of pins and needles everywhere in the whole body, pay attention, wake up. And there's a terrible syndrome called Saturday night palsy. Have I told you about Saturday night palsy, Linda? Uh, is that something about people waking up or falling drunk. asleep? Yeah, yeah. drunk and yeah, so, pins and needles. Yeah, so if you've got your arm over the back of the chair, after a while you'll get pins and needles and then you think, I'll move it. And if you're asleep... So it's your body saying, hey, pay, pay, pay attention. attention to me. Yeah, and so if you're asleep, you, it'll, the defence system is still strong enough to overcome the sleep and say, come on, Linda, move over. But if uh, a citizen drinks too much alcohol and is anaesthetised, then they ignore those signals... And they might wake up up to 12 hours with their arm paralysed, sometimes forever. Whoa. Whoa. So pins and needles is a sign that your body is saying, hey, I'm a dynamic moving structure, keep moving me around. Okay, does that kind of make sense, Dr M? It does, thank you. And Cade from Ferntree Gully in Victoria. Hello, Dr Cade. Hello. Why do whales beach themselves? We do not know. There are many, many, many theories and we do not know. One theory is that there's too much noise in the ocean with all of our ships making a lot of noise and they, the whales talk to each other and this bothers them. Another one is that there's too much pollution in the ocean and there's cases of birds on Lord Howe Island having 
100 grams of plastic in their tummy and dying. Another reason is that they might have infections. Another reason is that they might navigate via the magnetic field of the Earth and in the west coast of Tasmania, there's a bit of a magnetic glitch in the Earth's magnetic field and whenever there's whales migrating and there's a big solar storm, which gives a gentle nudge to our magnetic field, the whales are more likely to nudge themselves. And another theory is that they navigate with the um, sonar and the echoes bounce off something and then come back to them. And if you've got a very gently sloping beach, then the echoes don't come back to them. They go inland. There's a whole bunch of theories and it's probably a combination of all of those and we still don't know in 2019. But maybe you can become a cetologist, C-E-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T, a scientist, and discover that and help them stop beaching themselves. Thank you for your call, Dr K. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just got a great text from Eddie from Brisbane, Carl, saying, I want to know why Dr Carl can remember so much information but cannot for the life of him ever remember the Triple J phone number. Ah, easy. Uh, Three-part answer. Number one, I was lucky enough to grow up in a time when the Australian government saw education as a worthwhile investment in the future. I know. know. (laughs) Stop laughing. And so I've had 28 years of education for free, thank you taxpayers, including 16 years at university for free, thank you taxpayers. But part two. I keep that knowledge up to date by reading through about $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year. I pay for that. Number three, this is the important part, I turned into stories. I turned into stories and that locks the information in my brain because our brains are wired up because of the whole society thing and forming into groups to remember stories. I'll give an example. Suppose I give you a thousand words, Linda, in alphabetical order and I say, okay, now give them back to me in that same alphabetical order, forget it. But if it turns out to be a story about how Kim and Kanye, they meet up with ScoMo and then they go to the White House, they all have a nude mud bath and, and then it turns out that all the world leaders are actually reptiles from planet Zog, You can tell me that story and tell me most of those thousand words, whereas you couldn't if they were in alphabetical order. Mm. So what I do is I don't have facts, I have stories. So I turn each one into a story. I generate three or four stories every week written down on paper and then uh, you do this for a couple of decades and you begin to pick up a bit of knowledge. Just a bit of knowledge. Yeah, it takes a while. Just a bit of knowledge with Dr Carl this morning, one three hundred o triple five three six. It also gives me a chance to say something, you know say something of importance around here. Lauren from Balmain in New South Wales. What's your science question? Hi, guys. How's it going? Very good. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. And by the way, I'm very weak on music. I know <laughs> nothing. So in between times is me going to Linda. What's this band? Where they come from? What sort are they? Oh, they're indie circus surf pop. All oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I that's, gotcha. That's yeah. where my knowledge comes out. <laughs> We've all got different areas of knowledge and different <laughs> areas true. of ignorance. That's true. Okay, um, Dr. Lauren. Go, Dr. Lauren. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I was just wondering why when you're in an airliner, like a big airplane, you can sleep on that plane. But if you're down on the ground um, and one flies over, it's like deafening, even if you're inside or something. Why is it so quiet inside the plane and so loud? kilometres away from it on the ground? Um, The noise is generated when you've got fast-moving air coming out of the back of the engine or the propeller blades running into slow-moving air and you get all sorts of turbulence. Now, you might not think that air can cause turbulence and have energy in it, but just think about a decent storm in the tropics and a 100-kilometre, 200-kilometre-per-hour cyclone rips doors 
of buildings and destroys buildings. So when you've got air moving at 800 kilometres an hour, there's a huge amount of energy in there. So that's the first thing, that you're ahead of where that noise is being generated. It's not as though the engine is a noise generator that generates noise in all directions. What the engine does is throw air out the back and when that fast-moving air hits the slow-moving air, then you have the noise being generated. Secondly, it's generated in a bit of a cone with the pointy bit of the cone at the back of the engine. Thirdly, the planes have got massive insulation. I love the insulation and in some cases they even have noise reduction to keep the noise down as well. Um, Just recently we've come up with a new sort of engine, jet engine, that has, wait for it, no moving parts. There's no blade spinning. Instead, what you do is you get an electric field and you charge up some of the air molecules and then you change the electric field so it gets repelled and they go out the back. So all you've got is a battery and you've got an electric field changing and in response, air molecules just pick up their skirts and start moving in the other direction. So this could be the breakthrough. So how we can go carbon-free for the aeronautical industry and still have the aeronautical industry, which is absolutely essential for world commerce, 2 to 3% of world's carbon dioxide, but 4.5 billion passenger trips, but you need it for stuff to travel around the world. So we could move to a greener world with this new design. Yeah. When, does it, when, when do they think that that will start to be made? I don't know. Like imagine that you're the parents of a newborn baby and you happen to be on the hills at Kitty Hawk and you see the Wright brothers take their first flight, uh, are you going to turn to your baby and say, oh, it's so obvious. Um, in 1969, this was in 1903, in less than a human lifetime, we'll have, number one, aeroplanes weighing 400 tonnes, number two, aeroplanes that can go twice the speed of sound, number three, humans going to the moon. Mm. It's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Oh, well, thank you for your call. Dr. Lauren, we're chatting science with Barney from Lennox Head in New South Wales. Hey, Barney. G'day, doctors. How are you going? Good. Thank you, Dr. Barney. Welcome. Uh, I just wanted to ask, we've been having a discussion lately that we'd heard that all males or kids that are born will be taller than their mother. Um, I wanted to know if that's true and is it genetically going to be like that every time or is it is both siblings, males and females, going to be taller than their mother when they're born? So if you had an exceptionally tall mother and an exceptionally small father, are the kids always going to be taller than the mum? It's a combination of nature and nurture. Nature, what genetically is inside you, nurture what your gen- what happens to the world around you. And so um, in the American Revolution in the 1700s, the very soon in the second generation, the first generation after they'd been there in America, the settlers, they were a head taller, a whole head taller than the British soldiers. In England, from my reading, British people, if they were poor, were three quarters of a head to a head taller than the wealthy people until the Second World War because they didn't get good nutrition. So nutrition is part of it, uh, missing out on infections because you have certain growing periods during your life. and so are you saying the poor... People who were shorter. Were shorter. They were shorter. Yeah, and only at the end of the Second World War when everybody thought, oh, my God, so many people died, let's let's give everybody good food. For the first time, the poor people got to be as tall as the wealthy people. 
Okay, and then another factor involved is the infections. So if you during your life, sorry, as a growing person, you know, turning from a baby into an adult, you have certain genetically programmed growing periods. And if during that growing period you've got a terrible illness, you miss out. So vaccinations and antibiotics help a lot. Looking at the big picture, uh, the tallest people in the world for about two centuries were the Americans beginning in the American Revolution because you had lots of land and room to move and food and all that sort of stuff. But after the Second World War, they began to fall back. And now the Dutch are the tallest people on earth because, and we think the reason is their good medical system where a woman, while she is pregnant and for a year or two after the baby is delivered, has instant access by herself to the appropriate medical specialist straight away. And so everything gets fixed. And of course, they have a more just social system, all that sort of stuff. And it's not, and it's helped by the fact that Holland has half the population of Australia, but in a, an area like Sydney to Wollongong, you know, sorry, Newcastle to Wollongong, you know, it's, it's a really small country. So on average, males will be taller than females. And on average, each generation is getting a little bit taller and then we'll sort of top out at, at a pre-programmed height. And the Dutch are pretty close to it now. So it's not quite a, back to Barney's question, it's not a um, a thing that they're going to be taller than their mother versus their father. It's just that we're slightly getting better. taller, better at being taller. And with each generation, providing we keep the nutrition up and, and take the vaccines and avoid the infectious diseases and do the exercise and all that sort of stuff. Daniel from Sussex Inlet has texted in saying, hey, this is totally wrong. I am much smaller than my mum. These things happen. Um, uh, There's incredible variability in humans. Uh, In surgery, they have a saying, uh, there's some people you couldn't beat to death with a lump of wood and there's other people who drop dead from the shock of having a shave. (laughs) Ali from Coffs Harbour in New South Wales. What's your science question for Dr Carl? Um, I've always had um, hiccups. Um, all the time and I have a three-month-old son and he has now hiccups all the time. I just wanted to know if it was hereditary or not. Uh, number one, I do not know, but I will speculate and say probably. Why do we hiccup as an adult? And the answer is to be really annoying. So hiccups are absolutely essential before you get born because you think about it, you're lying around there in my favourite organ, the uterus, drinking your own urine, uh, nice and warm. Everything. What a life. What a life, what a life. Your lungs are full of your own urine, the amniotic fluid. Okay, the amniotic fluid is part urine, part other stuff. But your lungs are filled with this liquid that is 800 times more dense than air. So a cubic metre of water, 1,000 kilograms. A cubic metre of air... 1.24 kilograms. Air is really easy to move. And so you've got this situation where this baby is going to get chucked out into the world and it's going to have to breathe and it's had no muscle training. Aha, enter the hiccup. So part of the brain, there is a hiccup centre that makes the baby hiccup for three quarters of an hour, an hour every day. It's just lying there, moving the fluid around in different ways so that when the fluid comes out of its lungs and has to breathe air, it's got some degree of muscle training. And you don't need, there is no other use for a hiccup except to be really annoying. So maybe the force is 
strong in Ali that she has a bit of this left over in case you end up going to Waterworld and have to breathe water again. I don't know. But the thing is, it's just a leftover remnant. It's a genetic accident. And uh. is, it, is, is it inherited? I don't know. If somebody could give me the answer, look it up on Google Scholar. Not Google, Google Scholar. That's where the real stuff is. On Triple J, you're with Linda Mariano and Dr. Carl right now. We're in Warrnambool in Victoria with Dr. Sarah. Hi, you're on Triple J. What's your question? Hi. Uh, hi, Dr. Carl. It's Sarah here. Um, I was just um, wondering, a while ago, probably a couple of years ago, you spoke about when you um, cook a barbecue and you get charcoal on your meat, um, that's kind of seen as a carcinogenic. But when you're travelling overseas and you get an upset stomach, quite often you get um, charcoal tablets prescribed. Ah. Yeah. Okay, so the pure charcoal itself is just carbon. But uh, when you're barbecuing meat, you get the pure charcoal and you get the chemicals called PAH, which stands for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are known to be carcinogenic. So the pure charcoal itself is not carcinogenic. And if you're travelling overseas and you can't get to any pure charcoal, um, what I've done on one occasion is just get some toast Get some bread and then gently burn it, scrape off the black stuff and then burn a bit more and just scrape off a little bowl of black stuff. You might have some polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in there, but when you got the squirts, mate, you don't care and then you just eat the charcoal. Is that true? What? I, I didn't realise you could scrape the, the thing off stuff the toast off. and just eat that. Well, you can as a medicine, as a medicine, and that will cure your squirts. Well, it'll reduce the squirts. Maybe the placebo effect counted for a lot because it took a long time to do it, and I was getting sick of it by the time I got to the end of it. But it did kind of work a bit. I don't know how effective it was, but it's an oh, that's where you get charcoal from originally. Just sort of burn some bread and scrape it off. But you will get some of the PAHs. And if somebody tried to bring in as a brand new machine the barbecue as a way of cooking meat, there's no way they'd get it in. It, it's too dangerous. Okay, thank you for delicious. your call, Dr. Sarah. Um, Anthony in New South in uh, New South Wales in Hurstville. Well, Hello, what's your science question for Dr. Carl this morning? Uh, so my question is: um, uh, we know that the placebo effect can actually help uh, with sicknesses, but I was wondering if we could flip it around and could it actually cause symptoms? Yes, uh, there's a special word for that. So placebo, P-L-A-C. EBO means I shall please. And there's a word invented for it, uh, what you're describing, nocebo, N-O-C-I-E-B-O, meaning I shall cause unwellness. And um, the placebo effect is amazingly powerful. And we're just talking about the charcoal on the toast. Yeah. And and, and there was um, a recent study where they gave people a bunch of tablets and they said these, these people, should, these tablets should do this and they had a proper illness and um, they all got better and then they said to half of them, look, um, you guys took a placebo but uh, guess what? This is a placebo. Watch us make it. It's just flour, uh, you know, assuming they didn't have uh, gluten intolerance. Uh, uh, so here's these placebos. We're now going to give you the placebo. It's definitely a placebo. Can you tell us how you go? And even though they knew it was a placebo, they still were better than not taking the placebo at all. Isn't that weird? That is so So part of it is that you have to be fooled, but part of it is that you can then fool yourself. And this is from the god Richard Feynman, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N, who said the easiest person to fool is yourself. And I guess with a placebo, you're entering the stage of where you suddenly can't say, well, at least it doesn't have any bad side effects because it might. 
if you can convince yourself into it. So is that kind of answering what you're thinking about, So there Dr. is Anthony? a nocebo where it yeah. does the opposite of the placebo and it harms you, Dr. Anthony. Okay, cool. Thank yeah. you very much. Hey, Dr. Holly from Yarram in Victoria. Hey, Dr. Holly, what is your science question for Dr. Carl? Hi, Dr. Carl. Um, I was just wondering, my father had red hair up until the age of 14 and then he got dark brown hair by the age of 17, so he went dark. And myself and my two sisters all have red hair and I was just wondering why we've already passed that stage and we still have red hair. Ah, the answer comes to you in four alphamerics. Uh, Linda, have you heard the... What is an alphameric? Oh, it's an old-fashioned computing word meaning... Uh, it's either an alphabetical character or a numerical character. Okay. Hit me and Holly. What's going okay. on? Okay. MC1R, melanocortin type 1 receptor, which we might have talked about in the past, which is to do with pain and with to do with red hair and to do with melatonin and freckles. This this is all over the place. MC1R, those four alpha... Have I taught you a new word? Yeah, you have. Oh, wow. I haven't used that word for ages. In so, one ear and out the other. <laughs> So, um, Holly, uh, the straight answer is we don't know. We do know that red hair is related to MC1R receptors and the genes and how many copies you've got, but we do not know why it changes. We do not know the way it runs in families, the way you described it. We do not know why a man can have a red beard and black hair on the top of his skull. This fits into the category of the many things that we don't know. And I've just actually been doing a little story on the things that we don't know. And we don't know why the moon is bigger on the horizon when there's a full moon or why we cry or why we hiccup or how general anaesthetics work or why we sleep or why only thunderstorms produce tornadoes or why we itch or how, what's the mechanism of ageing or why we laugh or how and why animals migrate back to their birthplaces or what dreams are for or how turbulence happens. There's so much stuff we don't know. Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, thank you for your call, Dr. Holly. I'm sorry we don't have a proper answer for you this morning. You okay with thank that, you. Holly? You so say you're a mystery. You. But now I'm thinking about why we cry. Well, think about it. Um, something happens, you start crying, and your ability to have situational awareness drops. Suddenly your eyes are a bit misty, you're not paying attention. You can't see straight away, but you're not paying attention and there could be the killer dinosaur in the corner. And the other thing is it makes you more vulnerable in a public situation. So they say have a good cry, it makes you feel better. That applies only when you've got a support person or support group with you. But if you start crying when the killer dinosaur comes at you, I think you'd be worse off. The dinosaur's not going to say, oh, there, Linda, I won't eat you with one bite. No. <laughs> say, wow, you're not moving. Great. Who's your target? <laughs> no. Uh, Dr. Carl chatting science with you on Triple J with Neil from Brisbane. What is your question, Neil? Uh, morning, Dr. Carl, Dr. Linda. Hey. Dr. Neil. My question is about the intensity of the sun. I've got friends that are from New Zealand and they seem to keep telling me that the sun is worse in New Zealand. It's hotter. It's, you know, you'll get sunburnt more if you go there. I just want to know if that's true. Um, 
I used to know until I read up on it just last week, amazingly, and now I know enough to know I don't know. So uh, firstly, go to the Bureau of Meteorology homepage and search around and then you can find a place where they give you a minute-by-minute UV index. And you might have heard the UV index is 1 or 2 or 5 or 10 and what that number means is each unit, 1, is 25 microwatts of ultraviolet per square metre landing on the ground. Um, so UV index of two is twice that. So a UV index of three means you've got to wear sunglasses. And it gets past three by, in Sydney, 8.40 in the morning. Do you wear sunglasses after 8.40? Fo- good, Linda. Good. good. I do. And then, I lost two pairs in the last week. Wow. Can you believe that? Oh, well, speaking of losing pairs, lovely segue, then you'll have to buy some. And over half the retailers sell sunglasses that are not properly certified. So they claim that they will block UV and they don't. In some cases, the sunglasses can be worse. So if you have a glass that does not stop the ultraviolet, what happens is that you're wearing a sunglass, your pupil opens bigger to let more light into your eyeball and then it doesn't stop the ultraviolet so you can then end up with cancers on the eyeball. Go to the uh, Bureau of Meteorology homepage, you'll see pictures of that. So I'm learning about that. I would tend to think that the sun is less intense in New Zealand because it is a more moist country. You've got more water vapour in the air, it's a skinny country, and so water vapour will absorb the ultraviolet. But the only way I can find out is by then finding the New Zealand equivalent of the Australian BOM, Bureau of Meteorology, and then track through a day, and then over a whole year, the UV index. And luckily, that is a number, you know, so many microwatts per square metre. I'm thinking I've got the units wrong because that sounds wrong, but it doesn't matter. There is a number, and you can then compare one country to the next, and I think you'd find, I'm guessing, speculating that New Zealand would be less simply because it got more water vapour in the air. I don't know. See how you go, I Dr failed, Neil. Yeah, Dr. Maybe you need to do some research with your New Zealand friends. If you do all the work, we'll give you a a Triple J fun pack. We haven't given out one this year. We haven't given out one this year. For ages. We need to give out more. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Justin in Lilydale in Victoria, what is your science question for Dr. Carl and Triple J this morning? Good morning, doctors. Um, I was just wondering, well, if you drink like an ice-cold bottle of water, it's very refreshing. Um, Does the temperature affect how much it hydrates you? Ah, okay. We mentioned earlier that each day going across your membranes, 50,000 litres, 50 tonnes of water goes across. By the time the frozen water, the cold water, the chilled water has gone down into your tummy and then into your small intestine where it's absorbed, it's at 37 degrees C. It doesn't hydrate you any better. It's not that more of the water molecules go to hydrate you, but you do have that nice psychological feeling in your brain, which might in some way help physiologically, I don't know. But from an atomic molecular level, it doesn't hydrate you any better. And by the way, all that special chi water, um, alkaline water that hydrates you better, they're telling you lies, I'm sorry. Wow. Thank you for your call, Dr. Justin. All right, we've got Dr. Charlotte on the phone from Tweed Heads. Hey, Dr. Charlotte, how are you doing? Oh, do you remember me? Oh. Hi, Dr. Charlotte. Well, I'm so glad that you've called back with another science question. Yes. Well, this time I'm, I'm not at such a small scale. It won't be so hard, I hope. Oh, because last time when you called, were we talking about quarks? Yeah, and um, can you... Now I want to find out. So you know how absolute zero is the really is the only is the coldest temperature that they think there is. 
Is there a hottest possible temperature? And why is it so hard to make absolute zero? Um, Double-barrel question. Whoa. Uh, the coldest temperature on Earth was almost minus 90 at a place called Vostok in um, uh, United, uh, Antarctic. Sorry, say again. Pardon? Absolute zero is the coldest. You can't get any colder. Okay. Is there an absolute can't get any hotter temperature? Okay, so with absolute zero, minus 273.15 is the is absolute zero, and you can kind of go to negative z- temperatures if you go into quantum mechanics, but let's not do that right now. You can do that later when you get to be a big kid, maybe 11. Um, and the coldest, the closest we've got to absolute zero is m- uh, billionths of a degree. Not, not thousandths or M for millions, but billionths. We've approached within billionths of a degree. The hottest temperature we've measured is up around 10 to the 30, so one followed by 30 zeros. Um, the sun doesn't get that hot. The centre of the sun is only about 15 million degrees. And you can get temperatures higher than that when you throw enough energy at it. Um, I that, that's kind of all I know. I, I, I remember reading about this high temperature. I didn't follow where it was found. I'm sorry, child, I failed you. So you'll have to ask your, your clever mentors. Have you started seeing your mentors that we set you up with? The books are great. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, there will be an exam on them, Charlotte. I'm expecting you to get 80% or 85%. Ah. Thank you for your call, Dr. Charlotte. And I'll have to go looking up the hottest temperature. Why is it so hard to make it? Why is it so hard? Uh, you just have to get energy and focus it all in one place. So, sure, the amount of energy, say, in a container ship or a a big passenger ship moving at 20 kilometres an hour, 30 kilometres an hour, weighing a quarter of a million tonnes, that's a huge amount of energy in, you know, in that movement of a quarter of a million tonnes. It takes a while to get there. But imagine trying to apply all of that energy to a spot a millionth of a metre across and all of it in a millionth of a second. Wow. suddenly you run into technical difficulties and then you have to go into the real world, which is called engineering as opposed to physics. Oh, well, thank you for your call, Dr. Charlotte. Glad you're enjoying the books as well. As we chat to Dr. Carl this morning, Mark from Sydney, you've got an answer regarding the Australia versus New Zealand heat. So we were yes. talking before about whether the sun was hotter in Australia or New Zealand. What was your answer? So it's nothing to do with the heat. It's actually the distance from equator and the actual UV protection because of the um, reduction in the ozone layer. So similar as you know, in Antarctica, the UV rating is very high because of the um, lack of ozone. You have the same thing between New Zealand and Australia. Most of New Zealand is much further away from the equator and you've got less, less ozone um, protecting the, the residents from the sun. Yeah, the Bureau of Meteorology has an interesting article on it, and they say that it's only about a five percent drop, and that the 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 and the depleted ozone doesn't make it to Australia; it gets mixed in with other stuff. And but you, I, I completely forgot about the distance from the equator because you're looking ah. through more air molecules. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank, Thank you, you. Doctor yes. Mark, Doctor Jeremy from Penrith in New South Wales. What's your science question for Doctor Carl? Hey, doctors, how are you? Pretty keen. Um, I'm I'm a cement renderer. And just coming back from holidays, I've kind of been thinking about it, but the cement render make your nails grow. Does it make it grow, like, faster than normal? Are you saying that you've come back from yeah, holidays and your fingernails haven't grown so fast? Yeah, so by, by the end of the week, I'd have, like, a full full set of nails. 
Right, okay. And you... like normally, normally it takes like two, three weeks, you know what I mean? I'm just asking if cement render would make it go faster. Mate, <laughs> um, you are heading towards a uh, Triple J fun pack. So you know how on your fingernails there's a little white sort of half moon area right up at the top there? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Get a three-cornered file and make a nick and then take a photograph of your fingernails and every week measure how fast it goes along. And do this over all 10 fingernails for about a year and then when you go on holidays, keep measuring and see if there's a change. Mm. So the fact that you come, came back from holidays and it's different, well, remember the plural of story is stories. It's not data. So what we've got is a story and if there's a whole bunch of people like you saying everybody in the cement rendering industry says, yeah, there's something going on there. There could be something interesting, but we need to get some data. And so if you start measuring for us, then we could get you a Triple J fun pack, mm. but you've got to do the measurements. Thank you for your call, Dr. Sorry, Jeremy. don't have an answer, Dr. Jeremy. We're talking science with Dr. Carl right here on Triple J. Craig from Newcastle, what questions have you... Sorry, what's your question this morning? Morning, doctors. Dr. Hi. Craig, yeah. Um, my question relates to colour blindness. Um, I, have, I have red-green colour blindness. And I have two sons, one who's 17, Mitchell, and one who is 11, Thomas. And the 11-year-old, Thomas, has colour blindness, but the other, but Mitchell doesn't. So I'm wondering, and I was under the impression that colour blindness was passed on by the mother. So does that mean that my wife is colour blind as well? Ah, no, colour blindness in general is passed through the male line. It's on the last chromosome. Women have two copies. They've got XX. So if one of them is colour blind, then they'll go to the other chromosome and then they'll have normal sight. Men have only got an X and a Y and the Y is not a big, strong, robust thing. It's just a little fuzzy, little mutated thing. So men having colour blindness is something in 5 to 10% of the population is passed through the males. Women can have colour blindness, but it's by a different mechanism. But it is definitely genetically inherited. And we've come up with treatments via genetic engineering that seem to cure it, at least in mice. Dr. Carl, thank you for hanging out this week once again on Triple J. Thank you very much, Dr. Linda. That's Dr. Carl chatting science with you. I hope you enjoyed it and learnt some bits and pieces. And if you do like learning, check out another podcast that I host. It's Inspired on Triple J. It's where we talk to artists about songwriting and how they create their music. I did an episode with Joyride recently where he talked about this great track called Auntie Tracy's Cookies. It's got a big language warning, but he got deep into the making of the song and how the chorus actually changed a few times. The original chorus was Auntie Tracy's Cookies got me up and I need to chase these cookies got me high and it's like kind of like Aaliyah melodies it's a lot of fun check it out if you would like to otherwise I will catch you next time thank you for listening